DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, the book on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn, eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. It's great to be back, Chris. Thanks for having me. We're now in a very tough period where history becomes kind of foggy and shadowy as far as modern Christian understanding. And, of course, we're talking about the time of the Crusades. Yeah, it it is a difficult time, and it, it was a difficult time for Christians. We spoke last time about the rise of Islam and about how all of these traditionally Christian lands, these early Christian lands like Syria and Egypt and Palestine and Spain had fallen one by one and become Muslim. They had fallen to the Arab invasions. And yet there were still Christian populations that remained in these lands. And they lived the life of hardship. The practice of the religion was severely restricted. Really, just the the conduct of their lives was severely restricted. They were not allowed to have the same rights as Muslim citizens. They were not allowed to have the same privileges as Muslim citizens. They were forbidden to practice certain trades. They were forbidden to enter certain professions. They were denied opportunities in commerce and government and really just in everyday living. So it was a hard time for the Christian populations in many of these lands. And there was ongoing warfare, really, between the Christian lands of the West and the Muslim lands of the East. So there was a lot of back and forth here, a lot of secular politics involved, and it's hard to separate the secular politics from religion at this point because the the whole idea of the separation of church and state, of, of religion and throne, was alien to this time. There's a lot that comes into play here. There is a, a period in history, which I, I'm not sure if the West recalls, uh, that kind of led up to that agitation that would lead to the First Crusade. And I'm speaking of a time that you point out in the book, 732, when the Islamic forces were invading France, and they were set on Rome. And it was right. Charles Martel who really was decisive in pushing them back. There was this major tension and actual invasions occurring. Absolutely. And there was the constant fear that the next time they would succeed. Because again, the competition between the empires of the East and the empires of the West was constant. And there was constant skirmishing back and forth. So there was always the fear that they would move on Constantinople. They would move on on the lands we now know as Turkey, but were then the, the Byzantine lands and take those lands and then and then just sweep through Europe. The Byzantine emperor was very much concerned about this. And of course, relations between Byzantium and the West 
were not exactly great at this time either. Mm -hmm. There were many struggles between Eastern Christians and Western Christians, and there had been mutual anathemas pronounced at various times, and the the church was not united. And and from 1054 on, the church was in in many ways divided between East and West. So this this was a difficult time for Christians, and Christians in the East especially were feeling vulnerable. They were feeling very much exposed to the danger of an Arab invasion and not feeling that they could rely on the West to back them up. So it was initially the um, representatives from the empire, the emperors and would-be emperors, who approached the powers in the West and approached the Pope and asked about the possibility of a crusade to retake the traditionally Christian lands, the originally Christian lands in the Middle East. Because there was a period, I mean, it was felt by the Christians that it was important to make pilgrimage to holy places. There was plenty of evidence of that in the early church. In those lands especially that we're talking about, we're talking about Palestine, where all of the holy places were, the sites of Jesus' passion and death and resurrection. There were great churches there. And, of course, in Syria, the place where the believers were first called Christians. And then in Egypt, there were great shrines to go with all of the many saints that we've been mentioning through our conversations. There was the St. Manus, who had a healing spring near Alexandria. And those pilgrim flasks of St. Manus are all over the world. They turn up in archaeological digs as far away as France and Spain. So, so the, yes, there were many pilgrim sites that were now restricted often because they had been controlled by Muslims. For the most part, the Muslims were okay with, with pilgrims coming in and helping the local commerce and visiting the sites. Islam is a religion of pilgrimage, so they respected that and they understood it. And it was only on the eve of the Crusades, really, when there were various um, Muslim rulers who began to crack down on the practice and rough up the pilgrims and charge all kinds of fees for entering the cities and entering the holy places. And there were even rulers who defiled the holy places, and one in particular who destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So you see there were different provocations going on during this time. It was a time of great tumult, a lot of uncertainty, vulnerability. I think Christians in the East felt exposed, and they felt that their lives were in danger. Indeed, there were persecutions going on that some historians have compared to the persecutions of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. Wow. And I don't think you can downplay the role of just horrendously bad PR on the part of the Islams if the pilgrims are coming through by huge numbers and they're seeing these what they feel are desecrations or they are being treated badly in a, in a severe sense. And then they go back to their lands after these pilgrimages and spread the news of what is being done to these holy sites and how they were received. That's true. And often, because they had they had received wounds on their pilgrimage, they were revered by the people when they came back, because obviously they had made pilgrimage and made a great sacrifice to do so. They came back bearing the marks of that. So these people were revered. There was a lot of concern for their brother Christians afar. Mm-hmm. There were eloquent pleas coming from Constantinople. And, and then there was the Pope who said, we've got to help these people. And he's the one who raised the cry and called for a crusade, taking up the cross and marching there to take back Jerusalem and the holy places. 
So there was a lot of religious fervor. At the same time, there was a lot of division in Islam as well. The division was not only among Christians, but there was a lot of division in Islam. And many of the Muslim leaders were fighting each other and working against each other. So what we find in the long and and sometimes messy history of the Crusades is that you have occasions where you had Muslims fighting on the side of Christians against other Muslims, and you have Christians fighting on the side of Muslims against other Christians. It was a mess because of all the division, not only between various Christian factions, but also between various Muslim factions. It was not the simple case of a peaceful people being invaded from foreign powers. It was just very messy geopolitics of the time. We'll continue with The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
a teaching of St. Paul from his first letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts, but I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially, and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We now return to The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina. It seems as though there was this worldwide agitation occurring on both sides so that it's almost a perfect storm of whooping everyone up, wouldn't you say, Mike? That's right. But behind it all, there was there was genuine religious fervor. The people who, who, who took up the cross, who made the crusade, were doing so because they genuinely believed they were doing God's will. This was called by the Pope, and they made great sacrifices to do it. You know, for a whole century, the 20th century, Many historians were dismissing the Crusades as just an act of aggression, and they were saying, well, you know, the people who were carrying out the Crusades were younger brothers who weren't going to get an inheritance back home, so they wanted to go and get lands in the in the East. Mm-hmm. And that was just the accepted, received truth for a century. Well, then people started doing the actual research. They actually looked at the papers and crunching the numbers, and what they found was that overwhelmingly, it was not the younger sons who went on crusade. It was the firstborns. It was the older sons who had an inheritance. And not only that, but we went into the banking records, and and we find that they were 
bankrupting themselves in order to finance these expeditions. They really believed in what they were doing, and they did it at an enormous personal cost. They did it for atonement. They wanted to atone for their sins. They wanted to get to heaven. And on the other side, you know, what you have with the Muslims in these lands, they were defending lands that had great religious significance to them as well. So there was a lot of religious fervor on both sides. And again, there was also a lot of uh, chicanery going on on both sides, and, and things did get out of hand because it was an undisciplined movement. It, it tried to bring together a lot of different factions, a lot of different political interests, and uh, bring it together in common cause, and that doesn't always work out so well. It also was a, a spontaneous movement, and it lacked the discipline, say, of an army. So you had people who were acting on their own initiative, and uh, occasionally these things got out of hand, and, uh, and there was great violence done. And that did happen on both sides. There's plenty of evidence of massacre by Christians, which is unfortunate. There's also plenty of evidence of massacre by Muslims. So, uh, unfortunately, it's the way warfare was conducted at that time. But because of the religious significance of these particular wars, it's remembered in a, in a very emotional way, even today. Yeah, it is important to remember that, again, that emphasis on both sides. There are two sides to the story. Not only two sides, many sides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes there were so many factions, it's so hard to sort it all out. Because if you consider the, the damage that was done to relations between Eastern and Western Christians during this time when we, we should have been pulling together, you can see the devil at work. Mm -hmm. when, you know, you talk about the sack of Constantinople by the Western Crusaders, and that was a terrible thing. Constantinople never recovered from that moment because mm -hmm. it was so weakened by the sack of the Crusaders. That was a tragic event, and it was something for which Pope John Paul apologized on behalf of the West. But we also have to take into consideration that these Crusaders were fueled by the memory of the genocide of the Westerners that had gone on in Constantinople just a generation earlier. They really saw themselves as avenging the deaths of their family members who were destroyed in the uh, genocide in the 1180s when the Byzantines killed every foreigner in Constantinople. It was racial cleansing. It was ethnic cleansing. And the babies were killed at the breast. Women and children were killed. The, the elderly and infirm, everybody was wiped out. And the memory of that was in the, in the minds of the Crusaders for all those years. And this is what they were avenging at that moment. I'm not saying the Crusaders did the right thing. The Pope said, the Pope himself at that time said they did the wrong thing, and he excommunicated them. Mm -hmm. So we have that for sure, and we know John, Pope John Paul issued his apology. All I'm saying is that these were very complex events, just as today when these horrors happen. They're complex events, and sometimes, you know, you, say, you said that there are two sides, and sometimes there are eight sides, ten sides to the story. Mm, good point. A warfare is ugly. It is. And the devil delights, I think, when he incites religious people against one another, when, he's, when he pits one Christian against another. There were some positive results from the First Crusade, would you say, Mike? Well, certainly. I think everybody was surprised by the successes. They were surprised <laughs> that uh, they were able to uh, recover Jerusalem. And I think that it did establish the importance of these areas for Christians. We were never denied access to the pilgrimage places again to the degree that we had been before. 
I think that, that there's always been kind of a cautionary tale in our history because we don't want this to happen again. We don't want to have this war of civilizations to occur again. So that's always been, been there for us. But also, it did bring peoples together in, in many ways. It brought many cultures together. And even to live in a kind of peaceful coexistence of Easterners and Westerners, uh, Muslims and Christians in some of these lands, some people dismiss that as kind of a, a cynical coexistence where they just knew that the best thing to do was just learn to get along. But I don't think that was just it. I, I, I do think that there was goodwill behind some of it. Everybody wants peace. They want it not only for themselves and for their economic success, but they also want it for their families. They want it for their children. They don't want to grow up in a war zone. At this time, I think it's important to lift up an example of a people who stood fast in their faith, refused conversion, and uh, was able to sustain it until they could be free once again. And, of course, I'm talking about the people of Spain. That was a real slow burn of a crusade because it took so long for centuries. Spain had fallen fairly early on in the initial surge of Arab invasions, but the Christians really did remain steadfast, and, and so did the Jews in Spain. People sometimes will selectively read from Spanish history and say that the Christians didn't really suffer in Spain, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, intermittently, there were times of genuine tolerance and, and fairly peaceful coexistence, but interspersed in Spanish history were many persecutions and hardships for the Christian populations. Still, they were able to, to maintain their identity and a certain cohesion, um, a shared identity, and they really were riding the wave of the Crusades when they, they won back their land under Ferdinand and Isabella with that final push there uh, around 1492, at the same time um, Ferdinand and Isabella were sending uh, Columbus off to discover the New World. I mean, they really came but from a, a unique situations, don't you think, Mike? They did, and it's interesting to think that a Muslim Spain is not that far in the past, really. We don't even think of these things as possibilities, that there were Islamic troops that seemed about ready to take over Austria, and their victory seemed certain, that Spain was seen as a traditionally Muslim land because the Arabs had been there so long. This all seems so remote, so distant, but we shouldn't think of it that way. The Christians in these lands have maintained their identity and they've, they've maintained their faith through centuries of hardship when, it, when they had everything materially to gain by committing apostasy, by leaving Jesus Christ behind. But they paid a high price to maintain the faith through many generations, through many centuries. And you really can't leave the Middle Ages in this brief look that we've taken on it and not see in our vision uh, St. Francis, St. Thomas Aquinas, and also St. Albert the Great. That's right. If we had listened to these men, the great reformers, then our disunity would never have happened. You know, we would have followed the way of the saints. But St. Francis was sent by God as a great reformer to rebuild the church in a time when it had fallen, when there was a lot of corruption, when you had widespread dissolute living among the clergy and uh, lax discipline among the bishops. Sometimes the bishops were even absentee from their sees. They never even visited them. Mm -hmm. St. Francis came up in this time, and he showed 
that men could live and women could live uh, through through St. Clair. He showed that, that men and women could live in such absolute poverty and live joyful lives close to Jesus Christ. And he really did did establish a certain kind of reform. And St. Thomas Aquinas really did the same as a Dominican for the intellectual life. He really did show that the best could be taken from so many different traditions and synthesized in a Catholic way. And reason could be shown as the maidservant of theology, of the most profound theological truths. So we see that God raised up people in this time to be great teachers, to be great reformers, and to be great leaders. The church does not always respond the way it should. The people of the church, you and I, we don't always respond. We don't always hear the voices of reform when they come, but we have to be attuned to it, attuned to what the Spirit is working in the life of the church now. So often it's in that small, still voice heard in the hearts of men and women and their response to it that lead to those greater reforms, those great movements of the Holy Spirit within the church to respond to the culture where her people find themselves. That's right. It's not only the military movements like the Crusades, but it's also the spiritual movements, you know, as we we, we find them in um, in Francis and Dominic, Thomas and uh, Albert and and all of the others who really gave the Middle Ages their specific identity. They are so important for the understanding of, of the future development of culture. They were giants. And when people reduce the Middle Ages to the Crusades, they're not doing justice to the times. No, they're not. And if you don't mind me adding, Mike, for my own self, those examples of Claire and Agnes of Prague and those women who did extraordinary things in the stations that they found themselves at. That's right. And it is an amazing thing because, again, women did not have many opportunities in society. They, they could not influence culture the way men could. And yet, within the church, they could. Within the church, you could have these giants, doctors of the church like Catherine of Siena, Mm -hmm. rising up and becoming voices for reform in the church, voices for intellectual development, for the development of doctrine. It's, It's a remarkable thing that happens in the church because of the principles of Christian life, that in Christ there's no woman or man. Those distinctions disappear, and women are really given the opportunity to make the most of their gifts. Just another example of how truly resilient the church is. I think, Mike, you should write a book. Oh, that's right, you did. The Resilient, <laughs> yeah, church, so. <laughs> yeah, the resilient church, The Glory, the Shame, and the Hope for Tomorrow by Mike Aquilina. We've been talking with Mike. Uh, I cannot wait till next time, Mike. I'm looking forward to it too, Chris. You've been listening to The Resilient Church, The Glory, the Shame, and the Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we ask that you tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com. And join us next time for The Resilient Church, 
the glory, the shame, and the hope for tomorrow with Mike Aquilino. 